I got a question for you. You don't really believe the Bible is God's word, do you? I mean, okay, fine, it's got some decent teaching in it, but, but please don't tell me you take this book literally. How can you trust it? It's so full of contradictions, and it was written like, what, a million years ago? It's, it's outdated, it's irrelevant, doesn't apply to our lives today. I mean, do you really believe in the Ten Commandments? Do you really believe you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage? Seriously? And please don't tell me you really believe that there's a devil and a place called hell and there's only one way to get to heaven. No, I don't trust the Bible. It's probably just a big scam anyways. It's certainly not, I'm certainly not going to let it tell me how to live my life. And quite frankly, if, it, if you let the Bible tell you how to live your life, I think you're an idiot. I'm just pretending. Pretty good monologue, isn't it? You know, I, I went to, I took some acting classes in school I, back in college. I was always wanting to try my acting gig. I, I think I should stick to preaching. <laughs> Have you ever had a conversation like that? How would you respond if someone said these kinds of things to you? How, how would you answer their questions or challenge their assumptions about the Bible? Some of you have actually been in a conversation like this before. Maybe it was with a neighbor or a coworker. Maybe even a, a family member or a friend who's ridiculed you because of your faith and because of your trust in the Bible. If you've never had a conversation like, the, like this before, if you've never had someone say these things to you, it's not too far-fetched to think that you're going to have a conversation like this soon enough. We're starting a series today called Why I'm Not a Christian. In 1927, British philosopher Bertrand Russell, no relation, gave a lecture by the same title, and the purpose of his lecture, Why I'm Not a Christian, was for Russell to outline the reasons for his doubts about God, about Jesus, and about Christianity. Many of the questions that Russell wrestled with are questions that we struggle with today. Our goal in this series is to address some of these big questions in a way that might help you, some, help, might help some of you who have serious doubts. For others of you, I hope this series will not only encourage you, but better equip you to have conversations with people who are asking you tough questions and sharing their doubts with you. One of the things I want to say up front at the beginning of this series is this, that when it comes to faith, it's okay and it's very normal to have questions and to have doubts. Working through your doubts and your questions can actually strengthen your faith. And I promise you that God can handle your doubts. Many people in the world today... And probably some of you in this room have doubts about the Bible. I realize that some of, you, some of you sitting here this morning do not trust that the Bible is God's word. I read an alarming statistic this week for me as a pastor and as a church leader. Barna Research says that 50% of people who attend church regularly, 50% of people who consider themselves Christians and attend church on a regular basis do not believe God's word, believe, believe the Bible is God's word. Now, if that statistic holds true here at Genesis, then that means half of you sitting here right now listening to me do not believe that the scriptures are God's holy word. And that's cause for concern, not only for me, but for us at Genesis Church. And that's why we're sharing this message. Some of you believe the Bible is a good book. You think it's helpful, it's full of good principles and morally good teaching, but there are parts of it that you don't agree with. There are parts of it that you don't necessarily believe. You believe some of it, but other parts you don't believe. 
Some of you don't trust the Bible at all. You think it's old, you think it's outdated, it's full of contradictions, and it's caused more harm than good in our world. Many of you believe the Bible is God's word. But I would ask you this morning, could you confidently defend why you believe it is God's word? And if you believe and trust that the Bible is God's word, then I hope today's message will renew your passion for it. As I prepared for this message this week, boy, it got me fired up and reminded me that we have an amazing gift in the Bible. If you have doubts here this morning, if you have doubts about the Bible, I hope you will listen with an open mind and with an open heart. Because today, I'm going to give you five basic evidences as to why you should trust the validity of the Bible. Now, before we dive into those and, and look at those five evidences, will you pray with me? Father, I love you. And I'm so thankful that you love us. And I'm so thankful that you gave us your word. Father, I pray that over the next half hour or so, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds, that you would give us understanding, that you'd pour out your spirit on us, and that you would speak to each one of us. Lord, some of us need to be reassured about your word. I pray you would reassure us. Some of us need to be corrected. I pray you would correct. Lord, I just pray that you would have your way in our church family here this morning. And I pray, Father, that you would do uh, Psalm 119 for us, Lord, that you would turn our hearts towards your word. Lord, would you use today's message to increase our hunger and thirst for your word, Lord. Increase our love for the Bible here this morning. I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. My name is Kevin Russell. I'm the group's and disciple-making pastor here at Genesis Church, and I'm excited to be sharing this with you today. I really am. It's clear our culture today has an increasing skepticism about the Bible. But there's a bigger issue at hand that I want to very briefly address. Skepticism about the Bible is really the symptom of a bigger problem. And the bigger problem is the issue of moral relativism. Pastor and author David Platt says moral relativism is the anthem and the cry of our culture today. Moral relativism says there's no absolute truth, but the truth is determined by culture and society. And so as the culture develops and changes, truth develops and changes. And so truth is relative. There is no one truth. Truth is different for everyone. Today, if you claim to have truth or believe in an absolute truth, you can be, you can be deemed arrogant, narrow-minded, ignorant, or even considered a bigot. If you're a Christian and you believe the Bible is God's word and the source of truth, and furthermore, if you're going to take a stand for truth, that stance and that belief will separate you from our culture and the world. At best, you're likely to be ridiculed and harassed for your beliefs about the Bible. At worst, you could experience some significant consequences in the workplace or in school. You may even experience emotional or even physical abuse because of your belief in truth and in the truth of God's word. I want to set the record straight for our church family this morning. There is absolute truth. The next time you, I love this. The next, I read this online this week. The next time you, someone says to you, well, I don't believe in absolute truth. I believe the truth is relative. Here's how I want you to respond. I want you to respond. You write this question down. I want you to respond with the same question, this one question. So somebody says, I don't believe in absolute truth. I think truth is relative. Are you absolutely certain that that's true? I mean, are you absolutely certain that what you just said is true? Because if you're absolutely certain that what you just said is true, well, then you believe in absolute truth. 
See, the argument for moral, we could say so much about moral relativism and the negative impacts it's having on our culture today, but I'll simply say this. The, the argument over absolute truth is really no argument at all. The question for us, the question we must answer as a church family and as Christians in our culture today is, where does our source of truth come from? Christianity says it comes from the Bible. So let's look at five evidences of why you can trust the Bible is reliable. Number one, this is in your notes, you can trust the manuscript evidence, the manuscript evidence. The Bible is a book. It's actually a collection of 66 books. It's written by 40 different authors over the course of 1,500 years, over 1,500 years. And one of the three basic generally accepted tests for determining the reliability of an ancient document is called a bibliographic test. The bibliographic test examines the quality of the manuscripts on which that ancient document was written. We don't have any of the original New Testament documents. The original New Testament uh, documents were written by, written by the apostles, have never been found. Having said that, we still have incredible manuscript evidence for the accuracy and the reliability of the New Testament. Now, let me show you why. Let's look at some ancient documents that are still widely and generally accepted as reliable and trustworthy today. These are documents that scholars still use and teach in our schools today, documents that continue to influence our world. We're going to compare very briefly the manuscript evidence of those widely accepted documents to the, to the manuscript evidence of the Bible. And I want you to pay attention to three areas specifically. Number one, when, the origi- when were the original, original documents written? And how much time has passed between when the actual events took place or when it was ri- originally written and when the manuscripts were written? When, number two, when were the earliest copies of those manuscripts made, and how much time has passed? And number three, how many copies do we have of those manuscripts? The more copies we have, the more confident we can be that our copies match the original, what was originally written. I know it's a little complicated. I've got a visual to help us out here. Stick with me. I think you'll get this. First slide. All right, here we go. First, let's look at Plato. And by the way, this, orig- this information can be found on josh.org, josh.org. You want to gr- find a great website, I'll give you a couple more resources later in the message. Josh.org is the ministry website of Christian apologist Josh McDowell. These numbers were updated in 2014, just a few years ago, based on the most recent information, archaeological, historical research we have. First, let's look at Plato. Plato's uh, work was written in 400 B.C., That's when the original Plato writings were written. The earliest copies we have of his writings, 895 A.D. That's a gap of 1,300 years from the time of the original writing until the first copy we have. And we only have 217 copies. But Plato's writings are still considered a credible resource and still influence our modern view of philosophy today. Now let's look at Caesar. His Gaelic Wars was written somewhere around 100 to 44 B.C. The earliest copies we have are found in the 9th century. That's 950 years between the original text and the copies, and we have 251 copies. His Gaelic Wars, still a a respected, reputable uh, document. Homer's Iliad, written in 800 B.C., copies dated at 400 B.C., makes for a 400-year time span. We have now 1,800 copies of Homer's, Homer's Iliad, those manuscripts. Now, here's this is unbelievable. Look at the New Testament. Originally written, happened between originally written between 50 and 100 A.D. The earliest manuscripts we have date back to 130 A.D. That's a span of 30 to 50 years. How many copies do we have of just, check this out, the New Testament Greek manuscripts only? Over 5,000. 
5,838. When you add in New Testament, early translations of the New Testament, that's another 18,000 copies we have of that. When you add in Old Testament scrolls, that's over 42,000. That's over 66,000 biblical manuscripts we have to support the evidence that the Bible is a reliable document that you can trust. That's incredible. That's incredible. If you were to challenge a high school or a college professor, of which some of you may be here today, an English professor who studies ancient literature, they, and you were to say to them, hey, I don't believe we have reliable, uh, a reliable version of Homer's Iliad. Well, he would say, well, of course we do. We have 1,800 manuscripts. That's more than sufficient. It's a reliable source. Let me take one other example for you. Alexander the Great. Lee Strobel, in The Case for Christ, points out the earliest biographies of Alexander, Alexander the Great were written more than 400 years after his death. 400 years from the time he lived to the time he died before we have manuscripts written about him. And yet historians consider them to be generally trustworthy. We know Jesus was put to death around 30 or 33 A.D. Dr. Craig Bloomberg, author of The Historical Reliable, Reliability of the Gospels, says the Gospel of Mark could have likely been written around or even just before 60 A.D. He died when 30, 30 A.D., Gospel of Mark could have been written around, uh, was likely written around 60 A.D. That's a span of only 30 years. Only 30 years after Jesus died, the first original gospel was written. Mark's gospel was greatly influenced by the apostle Peter, who was obviously an eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The entire New Testament, check this, the entire New Testament, not just the gospels, but the entire New Testament was completed before A.D. 95. That's only 65 years after Jesus' death. By 100 A.D., we had the whole New Testament. Let me give you a little comparison modern day. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in November 1963. That was 53 years ago. In April 1975, the Vietnam War ended. That was 42 years ago. The space shuttle, shuttle Challenger exploded in January 1986. That was 31 years ago. The IU men's basketball team won last, their last NCAA championship in 1987. That was 30 years ago. And they're probably never going to win, so just start rooting for the Kentucky Wildcats. I'm speaking absolute truth here today. I'm sorry. <laughs> All of these events are 30, 40, 50 years ago. Some of you in this room are in your 60s or 70s, and you can remember where you were the moment JFK was assassinated. I was nine years old in 1986 when the Space Challenger exploded. I remember sitting in school when they told us. Some of the New Testament writers were likely still alive when the original gospel manuscripts were being passed around. That's why it's, that's, and, and here's why that's important. If there was false information about the Gospels, about the accounts that were written in the Gospels, it never made it out of that generation. Just like false information about JFK or the space shuttle or Vietnam would never make it out of our generation. Josh McDowell, I mentioned earlier, he's the author of the book of Evidence for Christianity, says no other ancient document in history comes close to the manuscript evidence and the reliability of the New Testament. Let's keep moving. Our second piece of evidence is the historical evidence. Historical evidence. Now, when I say historical evidence, I basically mean other historical sources that document the life of Jesus other than New Testament manuscripts. Uh, we don't need that one, Judy. Dr. Gary Habermas, who wrote The Historical Jesus, identified and examined 39 ancient sources. You, can, you don't have to use that one either. It's just, we're, we, we're deleting those, Judy. There we go. 
How about just the historical evidence slide? Let's get that one up there. Dr. Gary Habermas, who wrote The Historical Jesus, identified and examined 39 ancient sources outside of the New Testament that document the life of Jesus. 39 other sources that refer to the life of this man from Nazareth who changed the world. Professor Edwin Yamauchi, former history professor at Miami University, says it's quite impressive in terms of how much we can learn about Jesus outside of the New Testament. When he was asked, what, what can we conclude from all of these ancient non-Christian resources, uh, sources? Dr. Yamauchi writes, we know seven basic truths about the historical Jesus, or the Jesus that is described by these 39 of the sources outside the New Testament. Here's what we can conclude. First, all of these sources tell us that Jesus was a Jewish teacher. Second, that many people believe that he performed healings and exorcisms. Third, some people believe he was the Messiah. Fourth, we know these other sources tell us that he was rejected by the Jewish leaders. And fifth, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. Sixth, Despite his shameful death, his followers who believed that he was alive spread beyond Palestine so that there were multitudes of them in Rome by A.D. 64. And seventh, all kinds of people from the cities and the countryside, men and women, slave and free, they worshipped this man from Nazareth as God. Dr. Yamauchi goes on to say, the fact is that we have better historical documentation for Jesus than any other religious leader in the history. Let's look at the third category of evidence, number three the archaeological evidence. About 30 years after Jesus died, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. He gave the explanation as to why he wrote it in the first few verses. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Therefore, since I myself, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated, this is Luke, okay? Luke was a doctor. Since I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke was a doctor who carefully investigated all of the claims of Christ that were being made and circular, circulated at that time, and he wrote an orderly account or a detailed account. In the book of Acts, Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, nine islands, and hundreds of details about the world in which the New Testament was written. Sir William Ramsey, a Scottish archaeologist from the early 1900s, was a critic of the New Testament. But after doing a detailed archaeological investigation, specifically of Luke's writings in both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, Luke also wrote Acts, Sir William Ramsey concluded, Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. There are several examples where uh, we can look at from Luke's writings, archaeological examples. But let me just give you one for the sake of time today, Okay. In Acts 27, Luke wrote that, that the ship on which Paul was sailing was caught in a ferocious storm and ran aground off the, coast in the, off the coast of the island of Malta. Now, in order to lighten the ship, they cast cargo overboard, including the ship's four anchors. In 2003, a man by the name of Robert Canuck published a book titled The Lost Shipwreck of Paul. Canuck and his companions went searching for those four anchors. They studied Luke's description, and they calculated he was describing what is now St. Thomas Bay in Malta. And just off the coast, in 30 feet of water, just as Luke had described, they discovered four ancient Roman anchors. Professor Anthony Bono, uh, bon Bonanno, I can't pronounce any of these guys' names, uh, <laughs> verified the anchors could have existed in the time period between 100 B.C. and 100 A.D. He was dating them. He said they were likely used by Roman ships of that area. 
Finding four anchors in such close proximity indicated a sudden cut in the lines caused by a crisis. Listen, there's there's so much archaeological support. As I did all this, I thought, we need to do like a 20-week series on this. Like, I mean, it's just, you're thinking, oh, please don't. (laughs) Let me give you one other example. This is in the Gospel of John, John chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The fourth gospel writer speaks of a pool in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate called in Hebrew Bethsaida, which has, four porti- five, which has five porticos. Until the 20th century, there was no evidence outside of John's gospel for such a place, and critics often questioned the reliability of John's gospel because of it. Then, in the 1930s, the pool was uncovered by archaeologists, complete with the five colonnades around the edges and one across the middle. There's a picture of the pool of Bethsaida right there. Up until 1930, people said, oh, you can't trust the Gospel of John because he talks about this pool and it doesn't exist. I love God. Don't you? There's the pool. Dr. Norman Geisler well-known Christian apologist and author of more than 60 books, says there have been thousands of archaeological finds in the Middle East that support the picture in the biblical record. We don't have time to cover them all. I want to show you a couple more photos. This is a picture of Jerusalem. I've had the privilege of traveling to Israel twice, and one of the things you learn as you're over there is that there's no doubts about the biblical record being authentic and trustworthy. In fact, it was a surprise to me that our Israeli, Israeli tour guide, both times I went, two different guides, both Israeli tour guides, Jewish men, they used two textbooks as their source of information during our tours. First, they used a couple of books by, uh, written by a first century Jewish historian and scholar named Josephus, and second, they used the Bible. They use the Bible. That's what they train Israeli tour guides in, the Bible. You can trust the archaeological evidence that validates the Bible is trustworthy. Let's look at this next picture. It's the Sea of Galilee. I took that photo. That's mine. Aren't you impressed? So if acting doesn't work out, maybe I'll do photography. You know what I mean? I love the Sea of Galilee. Listen, you go to Israel, you walk the land, and you go, oh, Now I know why they call it the fifth gospel. It's often referred to as the fifth gospel because so much evidence points to the New Testament, to the Old Testament, to the biblical record. All right, let's look at the fourth evidence, the evidence of prophecy. Number four, the prophetic evidence. Do you realize that the Old Testament contains over 300 predictions about the coming Messiah and all of them were fulfilled in Jesus Christ? I'm gonna name a a few of them. Isaiah 7.14 predicted the Messiah would be born of a virgin and would be called Emmanuel. Micah 5.2 predicted the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 9.1 through 2 predicted the Messiah would have a ministry in Galilee. Psalm 41.9 predicted the Messiah would be betrayed by a friend. And Zechariah 11.13 predicted that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 35.11 predicted the Messiah would be falsely accused. Isaiah 53.7 predicted the Messiah would be silent before his accusers. Psalm 22.16 predicted the Messiah would have his hands and his feet pierced. Isaiah 53.12 predicted the Messiah would be crucified with thieves. And some of you know this, but if you don't, by the way, the crucifixion was predicted hundreds of years before that method was ever even invented. Psalm 22.18 predicted that they would cast lots for the Messiah's garments. Psalm 34.20 predicted that not one of the Messiah's bones would be broken. Isaiah 53.9 predicted the Messiah would be buried in the tomb of the rich. And Psalm 16.10 predicted that the Messiah would come back from the grave. And that's just a few of the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. 
The prophetic evidence is overwhelming and supernatural. I want you to do this. Some of you know this classic illustration when used. If you've been around church, you've heard this before. I love it. I can't get over it. I'm going to use it. I want you to imagine filling the entire state of Texas knee-deep in silver dollar coins. Got it? Entire state of Texas, knee-deep, covered, knee-deep in silver dollar coins. I want you to pick up one silver dollar coin and take a black marker and mark an X on it. Then I want you to take a person, blindfold that individual, and set them loose in Texas to wander through that entire state full of silver dollar coins. The odds that the first coin he would pick up would be the one with the black check mark are the same odds as if eight prophecies would be accidentally fulfilled in the life of one person. It's unbelievable. The point, of course, is that when people say that fulfillment of prophecy in the life of Jesus was accidental, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're talking about. Keep in mind that Jesus did not just fulfill eight prophecies. He's filled hundreds of them. Accidental fulfillment of these prophecies is simply beyond the realm of possibility. Let me give you a fifth evidence. Evidence number five, the common sense evidence. <laughs> I made this one up. Uh, <laughs> So there's all kinds of evidence out there, right? I mean, there's so much evidence in so many ways you can look at. And there's this category, that there's like two or three things that I thought, well, I gotta say these. But I'm like, what category is these going under? I'm like, well, these are common sense. So we're gonna call this the common sense category, okay? You're not gonna find the common sense category on like any of these websites we give you, okay? Only right here at Genesis. All right. Now, I wanna share some of this, just a few pieces, a few more pieces of evidence that's a little more intangible. All right, this evidence is a little more anecdotal, if you will. But if you consider this evidence that I'm going to share with common sense, and you stack this evidence on top of all the other evidences, I think it kind of becomes the icing on the cake, if you will. Number one, the Bible just doesn't read like a lie. The Bible doesn't read like a lie. For example, the heroes in Greek mythology are always exaggerated in power and goodness to the point that it's obviously imagined. But the main characters of the Bible are authentic and real and raw with, with human frailties. Noah got drunk. Abraham lied. David committed adultery. Peter denied Jesus. There's an authenticity about the stories of the Bible that just ring true. They just don't read like a lie. Secondly, why would the authors of the New Testament lie about all of this? Think about this with me. What would be the, the, the gospel writers and Paul's, what would be their motivation to lie about everything they wrote about? Were they trying to get rich? They didn't get rich. Were they trying to gain power? They didn't get any, gain any power. No, the exact opposite. The New Testament writers and many in the early church suffered great persecution because of their belief and claim, claims about Christ. The apostle Paul started off with great authority and great respect and influence, and yet he gave it all up for the sake of Christ. Why would he do that? Use your common sense. Paul was willing to suffer at the hands of the very people he was trying to share the good news of the gospel with. Ten of the 12 apostles were martyred for their faith. Does this sound like men who are lying? Maybe crazy, but not lying. And just to note, their apostles' martyrdom and the martyrdom that we see in the early church it's very different than the so-called martyrs who die by way of suicide bombers today. Suicide bombers kill people as a sick and twisted expression of their so-called faith. The apostles and the early Christians throughout history have been killed because of their faith. Vastly different. 
the motivation of the writers of the New Testament was pure and honest and trustworthy. Next question, just common sense, the Bible's durability. The Bible was originally written on material that perishes, called papyrus, and yet the words have survived. It was written long before the printing press and copy machines. It had to be copied down meticulously by hand, and yet it has survived. The Bible has been analyzed, scoffed at, and attacked more than any other book in the history of mankind, and yet it has survived every attack for more than 2,000 years. It's been the best-selling and most distributed book in human history with over 5 billion copies distributed. Another piece of common evidence evidence is, if you will, is the number of professionally trained intelligent scholars who have set out to disprove the Bible only to have their minds changed after objectively and sincerely examining the evidence. A few of the more well-known examples would be C.S. Lewis, Lee Strobel, and Josh McDowell. These are people who, after sincerely examining the evidence, became convinced that the Bible was trustworthy. All right, so how are we doing on time? All right, so there are five, those are five basic evidences as to why you can trust the Bible. The manuscript evidence, historical evidence, archaeological evidence, prophetic evidence, and what I'm calling common sense evidence. Listen, I had just scratched the surface in the last 15 minutes. Just scratched the surface in these five areas. There is so much more evidence and so many more detailed expl- explanations than I, than, than I can give you. And there are tremendous resources out there that we can recommend to you. Uh, you have some on the bottom of your notes. You have a few listed on the bottom of your notes. I want to give you one more that's not listed there, it's josh.org, josh.org. I referenced it earlier. You go to josh.org, go to leestrobel.com, go to rzim.org, go to reasonablefaith.org. If you have questions and doubts, go do the homework. The material is there. Now listen, all of this evidence is great, but how do, how do we practically answer the skeptics in our life? Maybe you've got someone in your life who's asking questions or challenging your belief in the Bible. Let me quickly just give you a few tips. Number one, pray for them. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says this. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You got someone who has doubts or somebody's questioning your faith, number one, pray for them. Number two, have compassion for them. Matthew 9, 36 says that when Jesus saw people, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. If someone says to you, comes to you and says, I can't trust the Bible, simply respond by asking, why not? Why not? Give a sincere, hey, why, why, give me some reasons why you don't trust the Bible. Let them give you their reasons so you can begin to address their reasons and remove those obstacles. They may say, well, I don't believe the Bible because it's full of contradictions. Really? Which ones? This is one of the most common responses given to people who doubt the Bible. They say, well, it's full of contradictions. Yet, ask them. Ask them for one or two specific examples. Most, most skeptics can't give you one. Encourage them to encourage a, a person who doubts to read the Bible for themselves before passing judgment on it. Lastly, and maybe most important, if someone is challenging your belief in the Bible, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Trust the Lord with all of your heart and share the good news of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, here's the thing. All of this evidence doesn't prove the Bible is true. You realize that? All of this evidence doesn't prove the Bible is true. The evidence proves that the Bible is a valid and trustworthy resource 
So the evidence proves to us that what is written in the Bible is actually what happened. So we can trust the word, that the words of Jesus recorded in the Gospels is, in fact, what Jesus said. The question for you and for me, the question for everyone is this. Will you be, believe by faith that what Jesus said is true? Because there were people in his day who sat there and listened to him and heard him, heard what he said, but they didn't believe. So it's, it's not a matter of, once you get past the obstacle of, can I trust the Bible as reliable, Okay, once you get past that obstacle, then you have the obstacle of faith. Will you believe by faith that Jesus is who he said he was? Will you believe that what Jesus said is true? Will you believe by faith that the Bible is actually God's word? Let me make this clear. At Genesis Church, we believe, I believe with all my heart, that 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is absolutely true. All scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Make no mistake, make no doubt. At Genesis Church, we believe the Bible is God's holy word and our source of absolute truth. Now, most of you in this room would consider yourself to be a Christian. But in order to be a Christ follower, you must submit to Jesus' leadership and authority in your life. And the primary way you submit to the authority of Jesus is by submitting to the authority of God's word. Write this down. This is tweet worthy. Uh, I'm going to say it again. The primary way you submit to the authority of Jesus, your Lord and King, in your life is by a submitting to the authority of God's word. Now, here's why that's concerning. Because Luke said, because Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? If you're a Christ follower, I want to remind you that the primary way you submit to the authority of Jesus is by submitting to the authority of God's word, the Bible. You got to do what it says. Now, if you still have doubts about the Bible or if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, I want to share with you one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. It's Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're going to enter into a time of communion. I'm going to invite our host team to come forward and pass out communion. I'm going to invite our worship team back on stage. I love Romans 5.8. I just want you to meditate on this passage for a minute. The reason why I love this passage and why it's one of my favorite is because it sums up the gospel. It sums up the good news of Jesus Christ. It sums, up, it sums up why we do what we do here at Genesis. And the good news is this, that God is the creator of all things. Genesis 1.1 tells us that God created heaven and earth. He created man and woman. He created all of us. And Genesis 3 tells us that Adam and Eve sinned that they selfishly turned away from God and insisted on going their own way. And when they selfishly turned away and insisted on living life their way, they separated themselves from God. And God is their source of life, and he's our source of life. And when you sin and separate yourself from God, it leads to brokenness and death, not only in this life, but for all eternity. But God loves you and me so much that he demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while you and I were still living in our brokenness, living in death, Jesus came to rescue us. He came to rescue us. And he died on the cross. And the Bible says three days later, he rose again. The Bible says he ascended into heaven. 
and he sits at the right hand of our Heavenly Father right now, and the Bible says that one day he's coming again, and he's going to restore all things and make all things new, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. See, if you believe that's true, that's reason to celebrate. That's why Jesus told us to take communion. Because he says, when you eat this bread and you drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. And so when we take communion as a church family, what we're remembering is the good news. We're celebrating and giving thanks to God that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you and for me. If you've never taken communion here at Genesis before, you've got two cups there. The top cup is a cracker and the bottom cup is juice. I'm going to pray here in just a second. And after I pray, you take communion whenever you're ready. And after a couple of minutes, the band's going to lead us in another worship song when we close out today. Let's pray. Man, Father, I am, <laughs> I am so thankful for your word. And I am, uh, I am so thankful that you not only gave us your word, but you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, that's good news. That's good news of great joy for all people. That's good news for all of us in this room. Lord, would you just help us give you thanks and praise for that in this moment? As we remember what you did for us on the cross, Father, we say thank you. Thank you so much. We love you. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.